This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin made headlines around the world this week after a video of her singing and dancing at a party were leaked to the media. Sanna Marin in the black top enjoying a wild night with friends at a private party. Reactions varied, but critics said it showed a lack of responsibility. The 36-year-old's political opponents say it shows she's not taking her job seriously and have accused her of consuming more than alcohol. But when Anthony Albanese showed up at a rock concert this week, it prompted cheers from the crowd. So, as the private lives of our leaders come under a brighter spotlight, has it made us rethink our expectations of their everyday lives? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisher about authenticity and gendered expectations of leadership. It's Friday, the 26th of August. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So, Lenore, two politicians were filmed having a good time this week. How dare they? (laughs) On opposite sides of the world, and that has made headlines everywhere. What do the responses to these stories tell us about what we expect from leaders? So what happened, the Finnish Prime Minister, Sanna Marin, a video came out, an unauthorised video showing her busting some dance moves on a night out, basically. (laughs) And Anthony Albanese was at a Gang of Youths concert and people saw him and he sculled a beer. So two Prime Ministers doing fairly normal leisure activities. However, there was clearly a vast difference in how those two things were seen. There's been quite a vicious backlash and debate over Santa Marin's behaviour with women sort of piling in to support her right to have a party and a lot of people criticising her. You know, I think it comes down to what voters have a right to expect from leaders. I think that we have a right to expect that leaders do their job well and that nothing they do in their private or personal lives threatens their ability to do their job well mm. and or to discharge their duties or put them in the line of potential blackmail. But beyond that, really... They're allowed to have lives in my view. I think the difference in the way that those two stories was handled has to do with two things, ageism and sexism. Mm -hmm. I guess one difference between the two cases was that Albanese was out in public, was recognised and responded to very briefly to people recognising him, the crowd generally, and whereas Marin was at a private party which when she did not realise she that any footage of her was likely to be released. And there was obviously the second follow-on story about the Finnish Prime Minister who was quite sort of teary when she was apologising for a topless photo that two of her friends took when they were at a party at her official residence where they were using the sauna and the downstairs toilet they were mainly and bathroom they were mainly in the garden. The women weren't actually topless. They had the words Finland across their breasts. But this caused further controversy and headlines like Finnish PM apologises for topless photo as steamy images emerge, which does make it sound like she was the one that was topless, but it wasn't. It was her friends and they weren't topless. Anywho, 
that was searching for a new angle, but it it did amplify and intensify the pressure that she was under from the sort of conservative side of politics in Finland. I mean, I don't follow the Finnish press closely, and I'm sure most of us don't generally, but a lot of the coverage in the English-speaking world, at least, has been, I think, has been as much about prurience as, mm. as criticism as per se of her, you know, it's not most of the English-speaking media is neutral about what goes on in Finnish politics and whether she's a competent politician or not. But a lot of it was, you know, obviously mentioning topless women and drinking and partying and dancing and the videos of her was just about an excuse to, I don't know. Show pictures of topless women in videos of, yeah. But she is coming under some quite intense criticism from the other coalition, some of the other coalition parties in her government. I liked a column Van Badham wrote for us about the whole incident this week where she pointed out that Vladimir Putin appears topless all the time. (laughs) He appears topless on with guns, on horseback, fishing, all the time. (laughs) And we know in Australia there have been parties in official residences, don't we, Lenore? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. In the days after Tony Abbott's dumping last month, it was well known he, his staff and parliamentary supporters commiserated the night away in the cabinet rooms at Parliament House. There were also rumours of... People dancing on coffee tables has even been known to occur. That did happen and the coffee table broke, Mm. potentially under the weight of a former treasurer. There were pieces of a a table there and... Pieces. um, Piece, like the marble had broken. Some of the pieces of the marble were found by the cleaners, yeah. Is there a difference in how, you know, male leaders have traditionally drunk alcohol in their spare time compared to how female leaders are perceived and what they are and aren't allowed, in quotes, to do? As I said, I think it's both gendered and ageist. If she had been sitting in a gentleman's club like an old man leader drinking whiskey with friends and having a good time, I think it would have not created even a tiny ripple, mm. just as a thought experiment. Just think for one second if Julia Gillard had been filmed dancing with friends. I mean, people would have had a fit. Mm. She had to endure a debate about the size of her bottom but from, you know, alleged feminist Germaine Greer and the fit of her jackets and whatever else. I think she felt like she had to really hold her image very tight to conform to expectations I don't think those expectations are quite as strong for men and particularly not older men. Mm. But it's an interesting case study in whether we've moved on somewhat. Obviously, we're talking about two different countries as well, but whether we've moved a little way at least from the Gillard era in Australia because of the backlash to the backlash against Marin has been quite strong as well. A lot of people saying... You know, people, young women like everyone else have a right, even prime ministers have a right to have fun in their spare time and good on them. You know, mm. that, that, that's been quite a strong a strong feeling as well. It's very hard to gauge where, you know, where the balance lies between whether that's a political bonus for her or a, a setback. But perhaps we have come a little way, at least from the Gill idea. But, you know, remember in the 80s that Hawke Minister John Brown actually had sex with his wife on his desk and she left her undies in her permanent secretary's ashtray and Hawke just said, oh, yeah, well, it wasn't anything to do with his parliamentary duties. So I think the double standard's been there for a while. Yeah. Many people have praised the kind of authenticity that was shown in these videos of both Albanese and Marin. And, you know, certainly a lot has been written about how people really like authenticity in politicians. But, Mike, what does that 
really mean? It's a really tricky question, isn't it? And I think there are kind of three parts to the question about authenticity and whether it's a desirable characteristic or whether a politician benefits from being seen as authentic or not. So the first one is that, yes, people want to believe that what they see as the public persona of the person roughly reflects how they actually are in their private life. And then the second part is they need to like what they see. <laughs> like if you're reflecting an obnoxious personality in public as it appears to be the same in private, then that's not necessarily to your benefit as a politician. And then there's a question of whether, assuming those two first factors are there, whether that actually affects your ability to govern or whether it contradicts how people view your competence in governing, uh, whether people can excuse or overlook or just not care about how you behave in private if you come across as a competent leader. Just to put that into some examples, I think increasingly Scott Morrison failed at step one because people didn't believe that the persona that he was putting out of his private life with his sort of very stage-managed social media presence of talking about the sharkies and his curries and his girls and all that kind of stuff, they increasingly came to believe that that was really a manufactured image and didn't necessarily reflect something true about him. And then, as we just talked about also with Julia Gillard, I think she really struggled to put across her actually, you know, in private, very personable, engaging, funny likeable personality that never really came across during her prime ministership. I think mostly because, as I said already, she felt the need to keep it very tightly controlled because of the criticism that she received for, for aspects of her private life. And for pretty much every aspect of her femininity. Yeah. You know, like her femaleness was what was attacked. Yeah. But to what you're saying, Mike, I mean, I think the combination of people now expecting to see and know more about a politician's private life and social media, so they want to try and control that but increasingly can't. We just keep getting fake authenticity and it's a matter of how good the politician is at faking the authenticity. So I agree with you, Morrison kind of went over the top by the end and people went, yeah, that's laying it on too thick. They all have official photographers. They all have social media advisors who massage an image completely carefully to feed this public need to know who they really are and this kind of, well, I kind of think plague of oversharing. <laughs> Everybody feels the need to share everything about their lives all of the time and voters want to know sort of personal things. So it encourages this sort of fake authenticity, which is, you know, a difficult thing for politicians to navigate. And also then they can be like the Finnish Prime Minister, in a situation where other people can film them at any given time, anywhere in their lives, and, you know, show up what they really are like, you know, when they're not massaging their image. And I just think we're pushing politicians into an almost impossible position. We want them to be real, but not too real. And we we want to know who they are, but then if they do anything kind of vaguely not in the guidelines of what we think a Prime Minister should be, then we attack them. I mean, it's becoming, I think a very, very difficult thing. And I mean, Anthony Albanese does it less than Scott Morrison did, but, you know, all the pictures with his dog and mm -hmm. those, you know, he does it too. They all do it. Yeah. I just think we're putting politicians in a bit of a bind. And I think it does 
limit who they can be and what they can do. As Paul Kelly said in a piece recently after Troy Bramston's biography of Bob Hawke came out, it revealed that he was having multiple affairs while he was living in the Lodge as Prime Minister, which I think many people would think was, you know, not an appropriate thing for a Prime Minister to do. And everybody sort of turned a blind eye to it. The security detail kind of got him to his assignations secretly. Nobody would be able to do that now. And I'm not saying you should be able to do that now, but it just shows the extent to which both expectations and behaviour has has really changed. I guess the thing with the curation is that there's a sweet spot where the curated image that the media minders and so on put out actually reflect something that's accurate. And in Albanese's case, I think, as far as we know, I think it's mm. pretty well known. He does he, like he, music. He does yeah. like music. <laughs> he does like the Rabbitohs. Mm. He does have a dog. <laughs> None of that is really fake. And that's not going too far with it, not not mm. over-egging it. I mean, Jacinda Ardern, I think, is another example of someone who's used social media incredibly effectively to put out her image of herself. It seems like that is a reasonably fair reflection of Mm. what she is actually like Mm. in real life. But obviously there comes a point where that goes too far and Mm. you're kind of sending out them constant messages and becomes tiresome to the electorate. I think Mm. that certainly was the case in Morrison's case. But does it, I mean, I guess my question is, does it matter if they're not actually relatable? You know, like I didn't share Paul Keating's love of opera or (laughs) French antique clocks, but I thought he had a very brilliant policy mind. You know, I thought Malcolm Turnbull had a reasonable, you know, had a good shot at his prime ministership, but I don't share, you know, Malcolm Turnbull's lifestyle or mm. living living situation <laughs> or many other things. I guess so it doesn't matter if they're not relatable, if they're very different from normal people, if they're doing a good job, if they're competent, does it matter? But if you are someone who isn't an every man or an every woman, and you're supposed to be relatable, does that rule a whole lot of people out of politics? I guess relatability is in the eye of the beholder, really, isn't it? It goes back to the authenticity question. Like Keating, that was authentic, that he loved French Mm. clocks and and the opera. And European suits. But then Mm. he still felt the need to be named as Collingwood's number one ticket holder, which he obviously didn't care less about. And so Turnbull was the same. He felt the need to express some kind of interest in sport, which he had no interest in. Mm. That's where it feels like we surely should be able to move on from that and at least allow people's genuine interest to be what is promoted about them as well as the sort of checklist of, oh, yes, beer, football, you know, beer, family, football, dogs. Dog. <laughs> I mean, maybe the difference with Keating as well is he didn't try to hide it or, no. you know, he did, you know, have the football thing, but that love of opera and, and art was his authentic mm. self. Mm. So true. obviously we play a huge role in in this as the media. Mm-hmm. Lenore, you've kind of alluded to this before, like how has the media's role in exposing people's private lives mm. changed and how do you think about balancing that today? I think it has changed enormously. Like when I was first in the press gallery, the rule was that if the thing you knew about the politician's private life did not contradict or damage or in any way influence their ability to do their job or didn't contradict what they said about themselves and about their beliefs, then it was left alone, like private lives were left alone. And that has changed quite dramatically over the years. I think the public's expectation has changed over the years and the way that the media deals with it has changed over the years. I think we're still some way away from the United States where, you know, people go actively after trying to expose every presidential candidate's 
every peccadillo. We we don't do that yet, but I think it has changed quite profoundly. I think there's probably an overestimation also of how much the electorate pays attention to these things. I mean, Keating did alienate a lot of people, but when he ultimately lost the, the election, it wasn't because of his personal life. It was because the economy was in the, in the hole mm. and there'd been more than a decade of Labour governments and people were sick of it. But in a way, that's I don't think that's a bad thing. The job they're meant to do is to govern and their competence at governing, at running a government, at running an economy is the main thing we're judging them on. Yes, if their private life contradicts public statements they've made about social matters or Mm. same-sex marriage or infidelity or whatever it may be or alcohol potentially, then yes, fair enough. That's Obviously, that's fair game. That's a political issue. But lots of people are flawed and that doesn't necessarily make them the wrong people to be in charge of our governments. Next, stones and snacks. Now it comes to the stories we can't get out of our head. Mike, what was it for you this week? The story I've been watching with a lot of fascination but also horror this week is some of the things that have been revealed by the falling waters in rivers across Europe, including these amazing things that I'd never heard of before called hunger stones, where across the centuries people have scratched into rocks on the Rhine and other rivers how terrible things were when the water fell so low that these that the rocks were exposed. This is going back going back centuries. And of you know, there's been all kinds of artifacts from the Second World War and whole villages that had previously been f- either flooded by dams or just lost under the rivers that have been exposed again. Um, so it's kind of fascinating, but also kind of terrible because obviously it's just another indication of the impacts of climate change on people and also on the economy because it was almost so low that the barges could not traverse its full length. So, you know, that's a massive economic lifeline throughout Central Europe. And if that becomes unnavigable at at any points, that's going to be, you know, another huge supply chain disruption that we could well do without. It's kind of fascinating, but also quite grim. And Lenore, what about you? Anything more uplifting? I can't get out of my head a very controversial sorted column in Guardian Australia this week (laughs) of the 10 best Australian snacks, which was very controversial in our office Mm. and particularly with me Mm. because it was wrong, quite obviously wrong. The winner was an agro cone. I don't even know what an agro cone is. Me neither. Apparently it's like a Mr Whippy ice cream with lollies stuck on it. That is not the best Australian snack. Number two was the polywaffle, like really? Number three was the rainbow paddle pop. I mean, what happened to mint slices or golden gay times or all the obviously superior versions of paddle pops? Anyway, it was meant to be a conversation starter and it was highly successful in that. It definitely was. And we did a people's choice on Instagram. Oh, did you? The Guardian readers. Shapes. One. Oh, barbecue shapes. See, obviously they're Exactly. Great. And the cherry ripe came second. Excellent. I may have voted for that more than once. <laughs> So, so it was a, a real, scientific study. It was a very scientific study. It's a real the, absence of chips the, and other that kind yeah. of snack. Twisties. What happened to Twisties? Twisties, yeah. I know. Lamington got in the People's Choice Again, top five. Again, an, another good choice. Yeah, that's not, exactly. That's even a snack. And the caramello koala, like yes. an iconic Australian snack. <laughs> I mean, the birdie beetle was in yeah. there and not the caramello koala. I know, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think wrong he, in so many ways. <laughs> I think the author, Paul Verhoeven, has chosen his list very well. <laughs> <laughs> to, to enrage our readers yes. and our staff. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us this week, Lenore. Thanks, Gab. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot. 
That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Dan Simo. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. I hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you back here on Monday.